Are there some things in your past, maybe some things in your present, that you're just not very proud of? In fact, you're ashamed about the fact that they're part of your story. Yeah, shame is a powerful emotion. And so do you struggle with the shame that you brought on yourself and maybe the shame that you brought on those that love you? Have you ever thought maybe that God might be ashamed of you? Well, on this Discover the Word podcast, Bill Crowder leads some conversations called Unashamed. I wonder if as a young person or as a teenager or as a college student or whatever the case might be, I wonder if my feelings about God might have been different if I would have known that God, great as he is, holy as he is, perfect as he is, is unashamed of me. Mm. Mm. Now, to me, that is a liberating idea. Yeah, does that sound good to you too? Well, let's explore some sections of scripture together that talk about different aspects of being unashamed on the Discover the Word podcast. And welcome to Discover the Word and another hour or so of studying the Bible together. Discover the Word is the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. And your study partners this time around are Bill Crowder, Elisa Morgan, Daniel Ryan Day, and Rasul Berry. And they'll be talking about this idea of shame. They're going to explore some places in the Bible where the subject comes up. And our hope is that you'll find encouragement and healing from the unhealthy kind of shame as you come to understand better how much God loves you and how he is not ashamed of you. And we'll also talk about some things that you don't need to be ashamed of. This episode of the podcast is called Unashamed. And one thing Bill wants the group to talk about right away is the difference between how we think about shame and how those in the biblical world thought about shame. So that's a big part of this first conversation. Well, first of all, it's good to have Rasul with us uh, back again. We love having you at the table, Rasul. Yeah. Glad to be here. And uh, in some previous conversations that you did not participate with us in, Rasul, we talked with Randy Richards and Brandon O'Brien, who wrote this tremendously important book. I think one of the most important books I've ever read called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. Yeah, I have that book. Good. Love it. What are some of the issues that they bring up that are part of Eastern culture that don't necessarily play well with the things we have in Western culture? Well, I think just to pause, that's the big idea, is that we tend to misread Mm -hmm. Scripture because we read it from our Western perspective, whereas Scripture was really written from an Eastern perspective. And then some of those particulars, as you asked, Bill, are things like reading it individualistically, like we do in America. Everything's about me, 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 you know, compared to more of a community read. Sure. And uh, talk about honor and shame and how that's a different way of viewing culture and one another. And that shame is something that can be used in a good way to challenge people to behavior that benefits a community. And shame can be used in a negative way when it challenges maybe the behavior that's harming a community. And the key word there was community, wasn't it? Because that Mm -hmm. goes back to what Elisa said. Uh, Eastern culture tends to be community-based. Western culture tends to be individualistically based. So Mm -hmm. all that checking okay with what you remember from the book, Rasul? Absolutely. As I read it, that was the same really insight. And I think the idea that we come with the scriptures with preconceived frameworks 
for what it's saying was in and of itself a pretty important idea, right? Like mm-hmm. that there is yeah. even an Eastern or Western sensibility yeah. to even be aware of is something that many of us are not really uh, taught. Yeah, it's kind of humbling when the lights go on and we realize, oh, I'm really reading into scripture and it doesn't say what I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And one of the things that they really pointed out strongly with us is that in a culture where you're inundated in your own culture, there are things that are naturally left unsaid because the people who are going to be the first hearers or readers can fill in those blanks themselves. The problem is people from another culture tend to fill in those blanks with stuff from their culture. And that's where the confusion comes in. So this week, we want to talk a little bit about one of those areas. And it's actually the one that Daniel mentioned early, and it's the shame versus honor idea. And I'd like to explore that mostly on the shame side of it uh, today. And that sounds like a pretty negative way to start a week of conversations. But actually what we want to focus on is what it means to be unashamed Hmm. and why that matters. And so the first time this idea appears in the Bible is actually all the way back in the creation account. Elisa, do you have uh, Genesis 2 verse 25? Yeah, yeah. You asked me to get it. And here it is. Um, And the man and his wife were both naked, but they were not ashamed. Okay, so automatically it flashes into our brains. Yeah. Different place, different time, different world, right? Yeah. (laughs) Totally. Uh, Yes. Before close. (laughs) (laughs) So you have a situation where they're unashamed, and that is really the concluding statement of the first two chapters of the creation account. In chapter three, the page turns, and suddenly we're in a time that feels much more familiar uh, to us in our time. So if somebody has Genesis 3, verse 7, this is after they partake of the forbidden fruit, after they disobey God, and the, the weightiness of that lands on them. Genesis 3, 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Okay, now the word shame doesn't appear there, but it appears there. Yeah. (laughs) The concept is definitely there. Before, they were naked and unashamed, and now they're naked and everything's changed. Yeah, they feel like they need to cover themselves. Yeah. This is where shame enters the human experience. And because, as we've already talked about, shame and honor were such big concepts and still are today in Eastern cultures— that becomes a theme that resounds throughout the scripture of shame versus honor. And even in our culture, I think we struggle to really wrestle with this because in English, we say things that don't make sense. For instance, shameful and shameless basically mean the same thing. <laughs> so to be full of shame and to not have any shame, oh, that is weird, yeah. Yeah, it, it's just kind of an odd thing that shame is a concept that we tend to use on people, but we don't really understand what it's all about and why it matters. And so what I want us to do for today, just to kind of kickstart our conversations for the week, I want us to look at three New Testament texts that all talk about being unashamed. So we're talking about being back into that Genesis 2 situation as opposed to the Genesis 3 situation, things to be unashamed about. And uh, Elisa, I'd like you to do 2 Timothy 2.15. Rasul, if you would get 2 Corinthians 10.8. 
Okay. And then Daniel, if you would read First John two twenty eight. Okay. So, so Elisa, start us off if you would. I'm happy to. Let me just pause for one second, Bill. A lot sure. of people, me included, are probably thinking about shame in the way some psychologists in America talk about it. So that's behind our thinking. And this is a different kind of shame. The Eastern version of shame is different than that, right? Okay, unpack that a little bit. Well, you know, shame is the debris you carry from uh, things that have been done to you or things that you've done. And God really wants to set us free from that psychologically. You know, that's what we have in Christ is a freedom, a forgiveness of grace. But this kind of shame is more about, if I have this right, help me here, understanding that there are wrong things and right things. Or maybe how else would you define it to differentiate our 21st century American view of shame versus the Eastern view of shame when we're reading these verses? Yeah, I can try to pitch in there because I think that was one of the things that was helpful in the chapter on honor and shame in misreading scripture from Western eyes, where they really compare it to the idea of innocence and guilt as a primary paradigm with which to look at morality in a way that in the West, we so instinctively because we're individualistic, and they mention that individualistic cultures tend to focus on, you know, uh, guilt and innocence, right? So we're mostly motivated from this internal sense of being guilty. And so I think even when we hear the word shame, we connect the internal experience mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of that to our primary understanding, where in the framework that we're discussing, it's more communal based so that honor is something that's bestowed upon me as other people acknowledge, celebrate and recognize or endorse what I do as good. And shame is more what happens when the community looks at what I do from the external standpoint and says that is not good. And I get my kind of cues about morality from that as a way of being as opposed to from an internal sense. That's at least what I got from it. And I think the big difference that you brought up there, Rasul, is the communal side of it. The communal side of it is what makes the difference because Mm -hmm. really shame and honor are experienced within the community. And so if I bring shame, I don't just bring it on myself. I bring it on the entire family, village, nation, whatever. And so it has a much broader application. Actually, as we'll see in a minute after we read these verses, the Greek word for shame pretty much defines the way you said, Elisa. But the reality is that it was experienced in a community situation Ah. as opposed to the more intimate personal situation. That is helpful. Okay. And I think some of that goes back to what Rasul was saying about in our innocence guilt concept over here. We personalize it Mm -hmm. as opposed to seeing how it impacts the community. And that's a part of it as well. So let's look at these verses and then we'll talk about the Greek word a little bit. Okay. So Elisa. Second Timothy 2, verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Okay, Rasul, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 8. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. Okay, Daniel, 1 John 2, 28. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. So in all three of those contexts, we don't have to be ashamed. So what does shame mean? And the Greek word, iskuno, 
means the feeling of fear or shame from having done or not having done something. Now, that sounds very similar to what you had said earlier, Lisa. <laughs> it does, but, you know, if I internalize that, that's why I go to therapy, you know, because it's all about me, you know. Yeah. But this is more of a we, of a body mm. interpretation. And I think at that point, Elisa, you might identify a little bit with Timothy because mm -hmm. uh, you read 2 Timothy 2.15. The word shame or a form of the word shame appears four times in 2 Timothy, and that's more than it appears in any other book in the Bible. Hmm which may be a hint that Timothy was struggling with this in some areas internally and personally in a way that was mm -hmm. reflecting poorly on the community of faith. Does that make sense? Maybe because he was young and inexperienced or new to it, or I wonder why. Well, yeah, I mean, that's one of the times that he's told, do not be ashamed of your youth, right? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And I think it goes back to this idea of the communal pressure. It wasn't that he was dealing with this internal you know, uh, perspective of I've done something wrong or bad, but that there was maybe from the outside a sense in where others looked down on him because of his age. But Paul is giving him a greater and broader sense of context to say, you are exactly where you should be and you're doing exactly what you should be doing. But I think it's interesting because that context of his immediate struggles as a young pastor, mm -hmm. uh, maybe shepherding people who are older than him, reveals the, the, the context of that shame being mm -hmm. communal-oriented perspective and not an individualistic one. Yeah, the picture that I'm trying to like get my mind around is, okay, from a Western perspective, which I have, so I already am at a disadvantage in this conversation because it's, it's going to be hard to understand what we're talking about when it's a communal sense, which is, I think we're all kind of admitting to a little bit. Right. The closest thing I can come to, to like some kind of metaphor or picture of, I think what we're talking about is the way that you would feel if you were hosting a party in your home and a lot of people were coming over and it was a surprise party for someone that's important to you. And you either prepared by cleaning the house or didn't prepare by not cleaning the house. And so you have the surprise party for this person that's important to you. Are they going to be honored and like excited that people are there? Or are they going to be ashamed by the fact that people are there? Mm. And it has this responsibility on me as the one who's surprising that I'm trying to prepare the setting for either bringing honor or shame to the person that I'm preparing for. It's about the, the closest I can get. I think the real pop for me in this conversation is the just the community aspect of honor and shame. And it seems like if that's the case, then what Christ is freeing us from is we don't even need to worry about shame in that sense if we are walking with him and living in him and doing the things that he has for us to do. That's really good, Daniel. And I think we've talked a lot about shame and the negative side of it. Mm -hmm. We have mentioned that there's a positive component to it, but all three of the verses we looked at were about being unashamed. Mm -hmm. And we want to focus on that side of it because if shame is a huge value, which it certainly was in the culture in which the scriptures were written, mm -hmm. to be able to be unashamed mm -hmm. would be a powerful thing in a person's life and how they approach life. To be able to live life unashamed would be a very, very significant thing to be able to say. And I think that's what we wanna focus on this week. And in the next couple of conversations, I think we're gonna be really surprised at the direction it takes when we think about 
being unashamed. I think you'll find it really surprising. Okay, when you were a kid, or maybe when you were young in your faith, did you view talk about God's constant presence in your life as comforting or threatening? Depends on what I was doing. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I'm not going to ask for an example. (laughs) And who said it? Is this mama saying, hey, God's always there. He's always watching. (laughs) I actually viewed it as comforting. And I'm not because I was always doing something right, but I didn't think about him when I was doing something Mm. wrong, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's been times growing up where um, the way, uh, and maybe it wasn't the reference to God's presence as much as God is always watching Mm -hmm. what you're doing. I mean, I definitely heard sermons and comments from people in authority above me that would say things like, God is always watching and be careful what you do. Mm -hmm. And I think there's even little children's Sunday school songs that say something very similar about behavior and trying to keep God happy Mm -hmm. because he's always watching you Mm -hmm. and make sure that you do the right thing. So I've definitely felt that pressure before. Be careful, little hands, what you do. Yeah. Yeah. I felt it in college. For me, it was the challenge of trying to be an 18, 19, 20-year-old that's living for God on a campus where there was a lot of temptations and a lot of instances of falling short of that. And I think that's Mm -hmm. moments where I remember being most aware of Mm -hmm. that sense of shame of, Mm -hmm. man, I blew it, you know? Sometimes the awareness of God's presence in a situation of temptation is not a bad thing because it does remind us, okay, I'm accountable for the choice that I'm going to make here. And I do want to honor the Lord, or maybe in that moment, I don't really care that much, but I should. I think what I'm going to, Bill, is thinking about times when I look back at my life. Um, I didn't really formally come to know God until I was more of a teen. But when I look back at my life and I look at the mistakes I made, I can see this punitive, almost self-inflicted shame that comes over me. But now I look at it through God's eyes and I see myself differently because of grace. Mm. So it's a lifelong challenge, what you're talking about. And it really has Mm. to do with how we view God, you know, whether it's past, present, Mm -hmm. or in the future. Mm-hmm. That's exactly where I wanted us to get to, Elisa, because this week we're focusing on the idea of being unashamed. And I wonder if as a young person or as a teenager or as a college student or whatever the case might be, I wonder if my feelings about God might have been different if I would have known that God, great as he is, holy as he is, perfect as he is, Mm -hmm. is unashamed of me. Mm. Mm. Now, to me, that is a liberating idea. It's a liberating idea. And where we find it is in Hebrews 11, verse 16. Uh, Would somebody like to read that for us? Sure. Instead, they were longing for a better country. I guess you'll help us know who they were in a second. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now think about that. God was not ashamed to be called their God. Now, uh, we'll talk about the context in a second, but how does that hit you? How do you hear that? Does, does that sound 
comforting and familiar, or does that sound strange and surprising? I want to be a part of the them or the there, so I, I hope we're in that group. I would say that in the childhood experiences that I was describing in church, that would be a surprising message. Now, after spending so much time with, especially with people like Mart, who's often on this with us, I feel like he emphasizes so much God's heart and the heart mm-hmm. of the Father and this loving Father that it's not as surprising as it once was for me, that God would not be ashamed and that God even approaches us in the shameful things that we might be ashamed of and still isn't ashamed of us, but loves us and wants what's best for us. Mm-hmm. I think to mine down into that, Daniel, I so relate to that. And for me, it's been about... I know I'm wrong, and I know there's a bad Elisa part of me in terms of my choices, but it's been a lifetime of learning that God doesn't see me that way. He sees me through Jesus. He sees me through Jesus' action, and therefore, you know, he can embrace all that's there. And Mm -hmm. and that's been a lifelong wooing Mm -hmm. of not only believing it, but living like it's true. Yeah. You know? It reminds me of when I studied abroad in Cameroon, where Stealing is one of like the worst things you can do in that country. Like it's really looked upon with great utter contempt. And on the TV, they would have people who had been caught stealing and they would just stand in front, have like a sign, I'm a thief on it. And people would jeer them. And that was part of this idea of evoking a sense of shame over what they have done. And so we don't normally primarily consider the ripple effects of what happens when someone that's associated with you does something wrong. Mm. That's somebody's brother or sister or father. And imagine that kid going to school and they're like, hey, I saw your dad, you know, with the sign saying that he stole. And we know that we have that same Mm. sense that if that was us here, that there would be a sense of embarrassment. But we don't normally think of it that way. So I think what draws me out is the idea that when he says, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, that that means all of what comes with us, even the Mm. things that we do wrong, Mm. even the sign Mm. that we could hold up to say, I've stolen, I've lied, I've done whatever, that there's still a willingness to identify and connect with us in spite of those things. Mm. And that's a good place to leverage the context of this statement because we know Hebrews 11 is the kind of heroes of the faith chapter, and every single one of them is a messed up person. Uh, Every single one of them has baggage. And up to this point, he's already talked about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah. I mean, he's naming all these very, very flawed human beings and saying, but God was not ashamed to be called Hmm. their God. Now, what's fascinating about that to me is that the phrase to be called means to be surnamed. Mm. To be related to? Yeah, to be identified with and to be surnamed. And so the Old Testament example of that is how often is God referred to as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Mm -hmm. It's almost as if God's surname is those that he's not ashamed of. And we could put ourselves. He's the God who is not ashamed to take us as his surname Mm -hmm. and identify that personally and intimately with us. And I find that astounding. Yeah, because what it means is not only does that feel good for us in one way, because, you know, I'm no longer just Daniel, but I'm Daniel beloved or child of Mm -hmm. God. Mm -hmm. But that also means that the way I live attributes something to him. 
Mm. and uh, it can be good. And sometimes God's reputation gets drugged through the mud because of what we do too. And yet he's still willing to put his name on us. And we can get really stuck there, Daniel, feeling Mm -hmm. so not qualified, you know, kind of thing. But don't you think the reality is that we're all messed up, broken people, as we've been saying, Mm -hmm. and there is a way in which God is not ashamed of our brokenness because his power, his glory, his provision, his love shines in our broken places. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like we have so little, so his so much stands out. And that's such an oxymoron, Mm -hmm. but it's powerful. And it helps us go ahead forward to embrace his not being ashamed. I think how that all sorts itself out a little bit, Elisa, is that when it says he's not ashamed to be called our God, ultimately what he's saying is he's not ashamed to identify with us in our struggles. And whether those struggles are challenges or whether those struggles are failures, he's not ashamed to identify with us. Mm. And because he's willing to identify with us, we can have hope in the midst of all of that because God hasn't given up on me Mm. and he's not going to give up on me because I don't make him ashamed. I think this is a reflection of just the perfection of God's love, whose love for us is so complete and so eternal that there's nothing I can do to make him love me more on the performance side of things that we've talked about. But in this context, there's nothing I can do to make him love me less. Mm -hmm. I'm his child, Mm. and he is my God, and he's perfectly good with that. Yeah, that's so good. The other part of that is it helps us to be settled in what ultimately matters because you know the context it says that they weren't thinking about where they came from because they would have had opportunity to return but they were actually desiring a better place therefore god is not ashamed to be called their god Mm -hmm. and so it kind of reveals this tension between the choice that we have to am i who i have been in my past the things that i'm ashamed of or am i primarily who God sees me and what he has in store for me moving forward. And that's a decision and a posture that he invites us to take. I'm not ashamed of you, so don't be ashamed of yourself. So God is not ashamed to be called our God. And and that should change the way we view God. That should change the way we view life. Mm. And that should ultimately even change the way we view ourselves such a comforting truth that God is not ashamed to be called our God. We all have plenty of things in our past that we're embarrassed about, but God isn't ashamed of us, and we can feel secure in that. This is the Discover the Word podcast with Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, Daniel Ryan Day, and Rasul Berry, and this study is called Unashamed. And when they continue, I think you're going to be encouraged and moved by the way family is brought into this discussion. Because have you ever felt ashamed of your family? I think all teenagers at some point have been at least a little embarrassed by their parents. And to be honest, those parents may have been embarrassed at times by the behavior of their kids. But sometimes it's more than that, isn't it? And so we'll continue this unashamed study right after this word from Our Daily Bread Ministries and your friend Mark Dehan about the Our Daily Bread devotional. The Bible is a big book, isn't it? (laughs) I think sometimes it seems so big that we don't know where to start. We've tried to start in Genesis and to read through it, but we soon get bogged down. Yeah, there's a lot of chapters, 
I've heard 1,189. There's a lot of verses. 31,103. Where do you start? You know, that's one thing our daily bread can do for us. Every day, a text with explanation, with illustration and example that brings us to the Word of God, a Word that can bring us to Jesus and to His Father. Words each day that can change our life. And there are a number of ways that you can get the Our Daily Bread. We'll send the booklet to your home at no cost. Or you can read it online, download the app, or sign up to receive the daily emails. Just go to odb.org for help in getting this devotional the way that works best for you. That's odb.org. And now let's look at a passage that brings something into this unashamed conversation that we are all familiar with, family. Okay, all of us have siblings. What is it about being brothers and sisters that can be tough? And what is it about it that can make it great? (laughs) They didn't always do what I wanted to do, Bill. (laughs) That's the main problem with them is they just don't see things the way I see it all the time. Oh, you sound like you have older brother energy. That is what I'm getting from you. Yeah, I got three younger sisters. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm going to come with the younger brother energy then and say that the problem is that the older ones try to boss you around. And to this day, there is no one on earth who can push my buttons Uh, like my older brother. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. And I'm a middle child. So I know how to um, mediate (laughs) a lot of different situations. (laughs) Plus I know how to win because I was always trying to win out to be the firstborn. But yeah, actually I have a lot of complication because I have a natural sister, a natural brother, two half brothers older than me and one stepsister. So I think I got it all. Mm -hmm. I am the second of seven children. And so I come from a reasonably large family. And um, I always say that my brothers got all the athletic ability and I got the looks and the brains. But I haven't been able yet to find anybody who agreed with me on that. So being family can be tough. Mm. And one of the things that makes it tough is just because we know each other so well. Mm -hmm. To your point, Rasul, earlier, we have these situations where nobody pushes our buttons better than our siblings because nobody knows where they are better. Yeah. And sometimes they press it with their finger and sometimes with a sledgehammer. (laughs) It's a little bit comforting to me as we talk about problems with siblings to realize that Jesus had problems with his siblings too. Um, Would somebody read Mark 3, verse 21? Sure, I can do that. It says, When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. Okay. So Jesus has been out healing and teaching and doing miracles and accepting praise and celebration from people. And his family, brothers and sisters, uh, come and want to take him home because he is an embarrassment. Now, isn't that a fascinating thing to say about Jesus, that he was an embarrassment to his family? Mm -hmm. How does that work with the honor-shame culture we've been talking about this week? Yeah, well, I mean, it definitely ties it into the communal aspect, right? Like Mm -hmm. what they are bothered by is not that he's making himself look bad, but the fact that everything that he's doing reflects directly on their family and their small town that they're from. So true. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that embarrassment is a communally felt embarrassment 
And that's why they're approaching mm-hmm. him. And I think what makes it interesting is that we can cut them a little bit of slack maybe because clearly they do not yet know his true identity. That's going to come after the resurrection, we find out in 1 Corinthians 15 when he appears to one of his brothers. And then in Acts chapter 1 in the upper room, not only the disciples there, but Mary's there, and also his brothers are there too. So eventually they do come around and get it. But at this point, they don't really understand who he is, why he's here, or what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And all they do is see it as this is bringing way too much of a spotlight on us. So the family element of this is what's really important. And that's what brings us to today's conversation about unashamed. Because yesterday we saw that God is unashamed to be called our God. Today, we want to focus on Jesus. And it's in the same book. It's in Hebrews. But this time it's Hebrews 2 verse 11. So who'd like to get that for us? I can. This is Hebrews 2 11. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Wow. Hmm. First of all, you've got family. Mm -hmm. He's taking all these different people from different cultures and different ethnicities and different nationalities and different cultural systems and all this stuff, and he's making one family. Yeah. Out of all of that. And in the midst of that one family is Jesus. And he looks at us. Hmm. And even though he's Lord, and even though he's the second person of the Godhead, he's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Going back to the book that has shaped many of us misreading scripture with Western eyes and I'm remembering, and I don't know that I have this all straight, Bill, so maybe you can help us, but one of the concepts that Randy Richards and Brian O'Brien talked about was that of kinship and how kinship trumps other relationships. Relationships within a family with kin are highly important in Eastern culture. Does that have a, a role here? Well, I think one thing, it's a staggering statement that you just read in Hebrews too. There are certain things that I read in the Bible and I'm like, this is almost scandalous that the one who sanctifies and the ones he sanctified can be called brothers and sisters, like fam, like that God is not ashamed to actually relate to us as family, especially knowing this honor shame culture that we're saying that the the bible presence is immersed in i mean this identification to be so close that he refers to us as family and that you know that the one who is able to sanctify god would then sanctify us even in the midst of our brokenness it's almost scandalous to think that, that that's something that we can lay claim to especially given the cultural context where family was so important in honor you know was so to who you were associated with was just as important as your own character People saw mm-hmm. your associations mm-hmm. as your character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in the case of God, it goes in the opposite way. Similar to how when Jesus was touching lepers, there was all these rules against not touching lepers because you would become unclean. But mm, when God touches that which is unclean, he doesn't become unclean. The unclean becomes clean. Mm. That gets me amped. <laughs> <laughs> well, it gets me amped too, for soul. And uh, I think you're right. I think it is scandalous because that also reflects onto God himself, or in this case, onto Jesus by being 
connected with us so intimately as brothers and sisters, then the way that we act also reflects back on Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, Elisa, to your point on kinship, it is really difficult in our culture to think about family ties that are so strong as they were in ancient Middle Eastern culture and uh, still around the world in many parts of the world today, where you don't get up and move away from family. Mm -hmm. You don't take a job on the other side of the world and move away from family. You stay with family. And you often do the same types of jobs that your family has done. And you don't just know your brothers and your sisters and your mom and dad. You know all your cousins and your uncles and your nephews. And you show the same respect to your uncles and aunts that you would show to your mom and dad. The family ties were just so strong. And so when we see Jesus saying that we are his brothers and sisters, what that means is that that same bond that we see in Middle Eastern culture, that's what we're being drawn into, is not this like, well, we're brothers and sisters until you do something stupid and then I'll disown you. Mm. No, this is like deep family ties. We will be connected forever type of ties that I think really makes that kinship idea so important to what Jesus is saying here. And now I'm back to the scandal that Mm -hmm. Russell and Mm -hmm. Daniel, you've both used that word. And the word sisters is popping off the page to me because that would also be scandalous for Jesus Mm -hmm. to include women Mm -hmm. in the kinship. I mean, we were Mm -hmm. unnamed unless we were related to males. And it's scandalous that he would say brothers Mm -hmm. and sisters. Yeah. Marlene and I've spent time traveling in uh, in parts of Asia where a lot of these kinship things are still very firmly in place. And one of the ways that you know you have been accepted into the culture is that they identify you as family. And so I have all of these young Asian friends on Facebook who, when they send me a note, it's Uncle Bill or Auntie Marlene. And that is such a, a statement of honor to be welcomed into their family because family matters. It matters for honor. It matters for shame. It matters for security. I mean, Mm -hmm. the only two things that gave you security in the ancient Mm -hmm. world were land or family, right, Daniel? Yep. Yep. Uh, So this brings an identification that also brings with it a measure of security. Mm. When Jesus himself is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, It really is astonishing that he would not be ashamed of us when I think there probably have been times when maybe we've been a little ashamed of him Mm -hmm. in a certain context or in a certain pressure point. Maybe we reacted in a way that uh, maybe I don't want to be too out there as a follower Mm -hmm. of Jesus, you know, Mm -hmm. but Jesus is out there as our big brother, and I mean that in the most reverent way, Mm -hmm. the one who is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. That's a pretty wonderful deal. Yeah, and it also has huge implications for the way that we then look at other followers of Jesus. Because if Christ looks at us and he's unashamed of us as his brothers and sisters, then who are the people around us who also follow Jesus that we tend to be ashamed of, but maybe as a result of some of the conviction that I feel in this conversation, in the same way that Christ is not ashamed of me, I can look at my brothers and sisters in the faith and not be ashamed of them. Yeah. And the other thing that means for me, I think about how my older brother and I, we don't have a whole lot in common in terms of our personalities. We're pretty opposite, but there's something that keeps us held together 
beyond the fact that if we just knew each other randomly on the street, we probably wouldn't be friends. We're not the type of people that would kind of just connect. But because of that identification that we have, having the same earthly father and mother, that that is what ties us together. And in the same way, Jesus is saying that I am tied to you. You are family to me, even when you fall short. And that also means because even when we were at our lowest moments, when I was in, you know, he was in high school and I was in middle school and we didn't get along. But if someone came and messed with me, I knew my older brother had my back. And how cool is it that that's the other aspect that we get to see of Jesus as our older brother, that we have somebody that now even sin and even death can't bully us, that there's a sense of protection that we have from our older brother. Yeah, thinking of it that way makes being part of God's family pretty great. Just thinking about the fact that Jesus isn't ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters, and that, like Rasul said, our older brother always has our back. That is significant. Well, this is the Discover the Word podcast with Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, Daniel Ryan Day, and Rasul Berry, and an episode called Unashamed. Now, every year, a ministry called Open Doors releases what they call the World Watch List. It's an annual accounting of the 50 countries where Christians are most persecuted for following Jesus. The 2021 report says that every day, 13 Christians are killed because of their faith. Every day, 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked. And every day, 12 Christians are arrested or imprisoned, and another five are abducted. Places like North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, those are right now the five most dangerous places to be a Christian. And that's staggering to think about, isn't it? Well, next, we turn to a passage that talks about being unashamed in the context of suffering persecution. And so let's listen as Bill leads the group there. I'm sure you're familiar with Voice of the Martyrs mm. organization ministry. What do you know about them? I'm mostly familiar with them through the books that I've read where they kind of collect stories of uh, men and women that have suffered for their faith around the world and throughout time. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, spotlighting persecution in mm-hmm. the uh, church that still is happening today all over the world. And wasn't there a book of martyrs? Is it Fox's Book of Martyrs? Yep. Yeah, I remember that in seminary, and it was like a bit of a biography of various individuals who'd been martyred, killed for their faith in Christ. Mm. And about as gut-wrenching a read as you'll ever have in your life. Very um, humbling. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of us who live in the 21st century Western culture, it's hard to really put ourselves in their shoes and appreciate what that feels like. Mm -hmm. What is it that makes that so hard to get our minds around? Well, it's so often a very physical Mm. type of suffering and persecution with actual torture and imprisonment Mm. and death. And there are those within Western cultures that have suffered in some way because of following Jesus. But it's probably very rare that it would be something like being tortured or put in prison or Mm -hmm. killed for their faith. And I think that's what makes it so hard to connect with. Yeah, it's more like being maligned or rejected Mm -hmm. or judged or not invited or included because people would assume because we're followers of Christ, we have views 
on this side of politics or on this side of money or on this side of sexuality, etc. And, and those labels get affixed and it's much different than the true suffering of the early church or in other parts of our world for the faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, people need to be convinced that there was ever a time that uh, Christians experience persecution because so often in a Western contemporary context, we are more seen as the persecutors, you know, um, and there's important historical context for why that's so. But I think that's also why there's a disconnect with the fact that mm-hmm. that's a part of the tradition and even the heritage today. Yeah. I think the way that I would put it is that for those of us who are followers of Jesus in a relatively safe Western culture, suffering for your faith is theoretical. Mm-hmm. But for people who actually are living in cultures where this is part of daily life, it is not theoretical at all. It is flesh and blood. And I've told you before about when I was teaching in Russia and one of my students who was probably around 60 at that time, and I was probably in my early to mid-40s, and um, he and I went one night to the ballet because they would always take us to these cultural experience things to get us exposed to Russian culture. And at the end of the program in the coat room, he went running over to somebody that he saw and they embraced and kissed, which uh, men do in Russia uh, to greet one another. And they talked for a few minutes and then he came back. And I said, obviously, you know them. Where did you know them from? And he said, well, we were in a labor camp together for 25 years. And that was the first time for me that Mm. suffering for Christ was no longer theoretical because even though I hadn't experienced it, I had a friend who had experienced it. And he and I talked for a long, long time about what that was like and what it was like Mm. to not see any of his kids grow up. Yeah, For him to finally be released and come home to a family that thought he was dead, to come home with all kinds of health problems because of the poor living conditions, Mm. and yet to see him every single day, always with a smile on his face, was just extraordinary. And um, I think of Victor a lot when I read verses like the verses we want to read in our conversation now, because these talk about being unashamed. That's our theme for the week, unashamed, being unashamed of suffering for Jesus. And I think it's a powerful idea. So if one of you would get 1 Peter 4.16 and the other 2 Timothy 1.16, we want to look at those two verses for our conversation this time. Okay, I can take the first one. Okay. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Okay, so if you suffer as a Christian, we want to talk about that a little bit. Do not be ashamed. Who wants to get 2 Timothy 1.16? I have it. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Now, when you put those two verses together, on the one you have Peter kind of in an exhortation to people that when you personally are suffering, don't be ashamed. (laughs) It's good to be unashamed. In fact, you can celebrate that because you're bearing that for the name of Jesus. But then in Paul's statement, he's talking about someone who encouraged him because in his own personal sufferings, this friend was not ashamed of him. Hmm. So in the one, you have don't be ashamed. In the other is, look how much it helped me that my friend was not ashamed of me. Hmm. Those are two different sides of the coin. 
Yeah, and I think it helps so much to have it in the context of what we've been describing of honor shame, Mm -hmm. because that helps make these verses make more sense, because the type of suffering that they're experiencing is the type of suffering and persecution that a thief or a murderer or someone who had done something wrong would have received as punishment. And so the kind of shame that that would bring on not only the person who looks like they're a murderer or a thief, but really they're suffering because they're a Christian, and the shame that it would bring on their community and their family because of the type of suffering. So not only is Peter challenging, don't be ashamed, but celebrate, in that context makes a lot more sense. But then when we see Onesiphorus doing something that we would hope that we would do, Mm -hmm. right? That if somebody else was suffering because of their faith, that we would identify with them. It means so much more here because what Onesiphorus is doing is not only am I not going to be ashamed of Paul, but I will spend time with him. I will even identify with Mm -hmm. him, even though he looks to the entire world as if he's a prisoner for doing something wrong. Mm. And it may be, Daniel, that Paul is specifically writing it this way to Timothy because Timothy has been ashamed of Paul. Remember, we saw that Mm. this idea of being ashamed appears four times in 2 Timothy more than any other book in the whole Bible. Some scholars believe that maybe the reason he's citing Onesiphorus as an example is to encourage Timothy, listen, you know, it's okay. This is what I'm going through. Onesiphorus isn't ashamed of me. You don't have to be ashamed of me either. Mm. And at that point, he's celebrating the support he's getting from one friend and encouraging support from another. Yeah, I think um, it's always helpful for me to remember that when there is a command, especially a negative command, there's a likelihood of struggling with the Mm -hmm. other side of that. And so in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, Paul explicitly says, so don't be ashamed of the Mm -hmm. testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. To me, I connect it with the way that the folks understood the Old Testament promises and the covenantal promises was related to this idea that if you do good, God will bless you. So if life is not going well for you, if you are suffering, that must be a sign that God is punishing you. And I don't want to be associated with that. So I think about Job and his friends, Mm -hmm. that their assumption was that, okay, you did something wrong. And so I want to either challenge you, but I'm also embarrassed mm-hmm. to be associated with you because you're clearly doing something wrong. And so this is also a theological shift that is being said to say, wait a minute, there's more going on than mm-hmm. a simple, if you do this, this will happen. And if you do that, you will suffer. Mm-hmm. With that in mind, let's think just for a second about the statement from Peter that was read first, if you suffer as a Christian. The word Christian only appears three times in the New Testament, and many scholars believe that each one of them is used in a derogatory way. It's used in a negative way. It's an insult. Hmm. It's labeling them as something unattractive or unwanted or undesirable. And so when Peter uses this word that, again, many scholars believe was a negative term, if you suffer as a Christian negatively because you bear his name, Celebrate that. Celebrate that because you are bearing his name. Even if they don't understand it or like it or resonate with it, even if they view it as evil and undesirable, you know the truth of who he is and you know the truth of who you are because of him. Don't be ashamed of that. And isn't there also a sense, too, in which we see in the New Testament where it's not only celebrating 
the fact that you are suffering for following Christ, but you're also experiencing his suffering, right? right? Like you are experiencing what Christ also experienced. And so there's also this theme of you have been counted worthy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to also suffer like God the Son suffered. And so that's also a part of what they're celebrating as well, which is it's kind of theoretical, kind of hard to understand. But at the same time, it's like, wow, I'm experiencing the same types of things that my Savior experienced. And I'm not sure if I can make this complete connection, Daniel, but what's resonating inside me is how we've talked about how God was not ashamed of us, how Jesus is not ashamed of us. And so we are not to be ashamed of when we suffer. But I'm also thinking because, you know, we really try to be good boys and girls, we who follow Jesus, there are times when a brother or a sister falls in sin, and we have a choice Hmm. to associate or disassociate, to be embarrassed or to not be embarrassed, to be ashamed or not ashamed. And, And I guess what I'm thinking about, Daniel, is what you're talking about is how we pull up Jesus' suffering. Even when we are sinning, He still is not ashamed of us because He's provided for us, and the same with God the Father. Can we come alongside our brother or sister when they fall and not be ashamed of them, i.e. not loving them, but stand there knowing that God's redemption is over that. We may need to disassociate in some ways, or there may be discipline in some ways, but can we continue to love them mm-hmm. the way Jesus still loves them? Because so often we just run the other direction and forget mm-hmm. about that. Yeah, that's right. Well, and when Onesiphorus looked at Paul's chains, he did not move away from him. He did not go to the other side of the room and ignore him. He identified with him. He refreshed him. He showed mercy to him. He helped him. That is a remarkable witness of living out God's mercy to someone who's suffering. And in our world, whether it's people who are suffering for the name of Jesus in particular, which is what we're talking about here, or people who are suffering in general. There is a world full of suffering who needs to know the mercy of this God who's not ashamed to be called our God, and the love of this Jesus who's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. We somehow need to become conduits and dispensers of what we have received so that others, when they are in their hour of need, know that there's someone, some Anesiphorus, who will stand by them as well. A sobering reminder of the reality that many Christians around the world are facing right now, and of our role in giving support and not being ashamed to stand by and with those who are suffering as brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, one more conversation to go in this episode called Unashamed, and Bill Crowder says, We want to finish with probably the most famous unashamed statement in the Bible, but maybe the one that's the most powerful when we allow it to live in the first century world. And so what is that statement, and why is it so powerful? We'll find out after this preview of our next Discover the Word podcast. There was a time I tried to unfollow Jesus, when I tried to walk away from everything hard in my life. And just a little backstory, I was living on this remote island in Alaska, and we were commercial fishing, and my husband and I were working together. We were trying (laughs) to work together, let me say that. 
And there just came a point when it was too hard. And I just, I tried to walk away. In fact, I did. I did. I got a backpack. I filled it with food and water and a gun for bears. And I walked off the island down to a cabin four miles away. And I was there for several days just wrestling with God and wrestling with what it meant to follow Jesus. I had said yes to Jesus about 10 years before as a teenager, but life was so hard. And it seemed like life got harder rather than easier in following Jesus. Don't miss the next Discover the Word podcast for some conversations with Leslie Leland Fields. Follow me. Insights from a fisherwoman about following Jesus. And now, the conclusion of this episode called Unashamed. This week, we've been talking about this whole idea of being unashamed. Mm -hmm. What are some things that we've discussed through the course of the week? First of all, just even about how we read the Bible. Yeah, we talked about how the Bible was written at a different time, in a different place, and in a different culture. And as a result of that, there were different assumptions and different understandings that people would fill in the gaps of the Bible with their understanding uh, in the culture in which they come from. And we're in danger of doing that by taking our Western culture and our Western understandings Mm -hmm. and putting them onto words in the Bible. And specifically, we talked about the honor-shame culture that not only was a part of ancient biblical times, but is still a huge part of Eastern cultures where there's this sense of honor within the community doing things that are good and right and that reflecting on not just you as an individual, but your family and your community and your town and your country. (laughs) And in the same way, there's this sense of shame, which is when you don't do the right things. That doesn't just reflect on you. That reflects on your whole culture and your whole community and your whole country. (laughs) And so there's a sense of right and wrong that has to do with your interactions and your relationships with others. So with that foundation laid, we've been thinking about this idea of being unashamed. And what Mm -hmm. are some of the things we've seen the scriptures telling us about unashamed? We focused on both God being unashamed and Jesus being unashamed of us. Yeah, how about that? It's (laughs) mind-blowing. I think the word uh, you used, Russell, was uh, scandalous to have that kind Mm -hmm. of a thought. Yeah, because it wasn't a passive, I'm unashamed of you. It's, I'm unashamed to be called family. You're God. You know, like your older brother. Like, yeah, like I'm God and... I am not ashamed to be identified with you to the point of like my name being attached to your name. Mm. You know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Bill, Daniel, Elisa, Russell. I love that. And when you said sons and daughters, you know, attached to, you think Jesus, we are very comfortable with him being labeled true to his identity, the son of God. But to think of Russell and Bill and Daniel and Elisa and Brian being sons and daughters Uh, brothers and sisters related to him is wow i think the reason that blows our minds so much is because we make a huge shift theologically from the transcendence of god to the eminence of god Mm -hmm. revelation one john sees the risen christ glorified and majestic and almighty and his response is to fall at his feet as if dead Mm -hmm. and yet That's the Jesus who's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Hmm. 
Yeah. It is a mind-blowing, wonderful reality. And then what did we see in our last conversation? We saw how all this impacts the way that we view others and that in the same way that God and Jesus are not ashamed to be tied to us as family, we are tied to other Christ followers as family. And when we see them suffering, whether it's for their faith or as Elisa brought out for things that they've messed up on, do we run the other direction or do we lean into that new family bond that we have with them in Christ and stand with them, even if that might make us look bad too. Yeah. And I think that standing with, just wanted to clarify, doesn't mean that we completely co-sign on all the things That's right. that they did, <laughs> right? but, yeah. or cover mm-hmm. it up or diminish it. Yeah. Sometimes that's part of the power of the being unashamed is I'm not saying that what you did is right at all. Yeah. I'm just saying I'm not throwing you away. And that I'm going to be there with you during the restoration, Mm. even though that some people might criticize me for that. Mm. Yeah, that's important. Yeah, the whole idea of when Paul was suffering, we get the impression in 2 Timothy that Timothy was ashamed of that. Mm -hmm. But Onesiphorus wasn't. Mm. And it says, he showed mercy to me, and he was not ashamed of my chains. So as we've kind of walked through this week together of what it means to be unashamed, We want to finish with probably the most famous unashamed statement in the Bible, but maybe the one that's the most powerful when we allow it to live in the first century world. And that's Romans 1.16. And we're going to tack on 2 Timothy 1.8 also. And I want us to get both of these verses together because they're both affirming this idea. So if someone would get Romans 1.16 and then someone else 2 Timothy 1 verse 8. I have Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And then 2 Timothy 1, 8. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So in Romans 1, he says... I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then in 2 Timothy 1, he says, don't be ashamed of the testimony, which he later defines as the gospel. Let's focus our conversation mostly on the Romans 1, because this is where allowing this idea to live and breathe in the first century Roman culture is so important, because the gospel is all about what? Good news. (laughs) It's good news Unless you're a Roman. That's true. Because nobody in Rome would ever imagine good news connected to a cross. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the cross was deliberately, intentionally designed to bring public shame yeah. to mm-hmm. those who were branded criminals to be publicly humiliated by being tortured in broad daylight, naked, so that everyone could see. And it was a thing where people could come, they mocked just like they did Jesus, and to ultimately be this sign of complete and utter rejection. That's what the cross was. That's right. For the criminal and anyone related to the criminal and anyone who Mm -hmm. knew the criminal. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the best examples of that is the very sign they put above Jesus. I mean, they were not just mocking Jesus, but they were mocking the whole culture by saying, look, here's the king of the Jews. Mm -hmm. When you think about 
what the cross represented in the first century. It is so different from what the cross represents today in Western culture, where we've yeah. sanitized it. Mm. Jewelry or a picture. Or... Yeah, and I'm not necessarily saying it's evil to wear a cross around your neck, especially if you're doing it to bear witness to the one who died on the cross for you. But I'm just saying we've lost the sense of humiliation, the stigma, the absolute sense, as you rightly said, of shame that was intentionally attached to the cross. So you're part of the church at Rome, right? And you get this letter from Paul, this apostle to the Gentiles, and you've heard stories about him. You've never met him. You don't know this guy personally. Some people in the church do because there's a whole list of them in Romans 16 who he identifies as friends and commends. But you're just sitting there, and they say, we've got a letter to us from the apostle Paul, And you come upon, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Wait a minute. (laughs) Well, especially because even the word gospel was a Roman word that was used to like declare the good news about Caesar. So like not only is there the cross aspect of a symbol of torture and shame, but they're actually using the very word that would describe what is supposed to be best for Roman citizens and best for the community. They're saying that this is good news about a cross. I mean, it's so counter to what Mm -hmm. we would expect. To say this somehow, that a crucified criminal was your God. Mm -hmm. A word that's popped up several times in our conversations has been scandalous. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That is where scandal reaches its high point. Because to say, yes, my God was crucified on a cross by Rome, and I'm proud of that, mm. to Romans, would have been so off the charts shocking. So he starts off this letter with a very dramatic thought that we just kind of yeah. gloss right over. It's like it was a dark and stormy night. I mean, his first lines are big when he starts Huge. out this letter. I mean, yeah. Very provocative. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're in the seat, the very capital of the biggest, largest, baddest empire where they routinely would echo the good news of their emperor, Caesar, who they associated as the son of God (laughs) and would parade his captors through the city as they celebrated. So the very Mm -hmm. sense of to them of power was divine. And you are explicitly saying that the good news is actually that your savior was publicly shamed and tortured and executed by that government, Mm -hmm. you know, as a sign of our own sense of forgiveness and ultimately what would become his own exaltation. That is completely upside down from what they would have thought. We've referred to the fact that Jesus is the upside down king of an upside down kingdom. (laughs) And that is what this would have sounded like to Rome. What I would like to suggest to you is that it's the world that's upside down. Jesus and his kingdom are right side up because the kingdom is built on his willingness to lay down his life for us. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly, which goes back to connect a couple of dots. He is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. And the price that was necessary to make that possible was a cross. So he wasn't ashamed of the cross. Mm -hmm. And now Paul says to the church at Rome, 
if he was willing to take the cross, despising the shame, as Hebrews 12 says, to make us his brothers and sisters, how could we ever be ashamed of that cross ourselves? Yeah, and for those of us, Bill, that hear what you're saying and we're reminded of the times where we have been ashamed, the good news, the gospel for us, is the fact that even when we feel ashamed of God or when we do things that we're not proud of, that this God is a God who stands with us and is still not ashamed of us and loves us and uses that relationship to draw us closer to Him and make us more like Him instead of pushing us away as if our shame of Him has in some way ruined the relationship. And the absolute proof of that is the cross because that's how far He went to make us His own. Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross is very real evidence of just how much He loves us. No matter how badly we mess up, Jesus always invites us back into closer relationship with Him. That's the gospel. And there's not reason to be embarrassed or ashamed of that gospel. Well, that was another episode of the Discover the Word podcast with Bill Crowder, Elisa Morgan, Daniel Ryan Day, and Rasul Berry called Unashamed. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Encourage you to explore other studies with the group on our discovertheword.org website. Our mission and all we do here at Discover the Word and Our Daily Bread Ministries is to make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. And if you'd like to come alongside and partner with us in this ministry, we invite you to lend your financial support. Simply go online to discovertheword.org and click the Donate button. You'll see some options and you can give right there. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedding. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.